This is Guns and Butter. that everybody gets a universal basic income, in other words, a dividend every month does not make you dependent on the government. What makes you dependent on the government is if they've cut off the jobs, if you cannot go out and work. And that's the situation we have right now. We cannot go out and work. The only real downside is that people think that would be inflationary if the, if the government just keeps pumping money out there month after month, but it won't because of this whole debt deflation situation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Ellen Brown and Peter Koenig. Today's show, Global Economic Lockdown. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, author, and founder of the Public Banking Institute. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free, and From Austerity to Prosperity, The Public Bank Solution. Peter Koenig is an economist and geopolitical analyst. He is a water resources and environmental specialist. He worked for over 30 years with the World Bank and the World Health Organization around the world in the fields of environment and water. He is the author of Implosion, an economic thriller about war, environmental destruction, and corporate greed. Today we discuss the devastating economic and social impact of the global lockdown. Ellen Brown, welcome. Oh, thanks, Bonnie. It's great to talk to you again. And Peter Koenig, welcome. Hi. Thanks, Bonnie, for having me. We are in the midst of an unprecedented controlled demolition of the economy, not just here in the U.S., but globally, under the auspices of a health pandemic. Even though this has been going on now for how long? Six weeks? I am still in shock at what is transpiring. There apparently is a global political consensus to shut economies down. This is being done purposefully. Peter Koenig, let's start with you. What do you think is the real agenda of this global economic collapse? Uh, well, I would I would go back uh, ten years to to the infamous uh, Rockefeller report of uh, 2010, and this Rockefeller report, which actually only surfaced recently again, uh, because people started remembering what was in it, uh, had pretty much predicted what we are living now, and what we are living now is what they call uh, lockstep, the lockstep scenario. That's the first phase. Uh, of what uh, what 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 is meant, you know, the lockstep scenario was supposed to to start uh, exactly in the decade of the the twenties, and the decade of the twenties was already uh, planned to be the decades of the uh, sustainable development goals, and and so this whole thing is being uh, planted into the United Nations Agenda 2030 because 2030 is the end goal of the Sustainable Development Goals. And many of the components of the Rockefeller report have been integrated actually into into this agenda 2030. That's why it's so scary. But let me let me go a little bit back again and uh, and at least summarize what is in this agenda. Uh, One of the items is, of course, uh, total control of the economy, uh, total control of the population, 
total control actually eventually of uh, the mind of the people and uh, an identification and electronic identification for every person of this globe and uh, of course uh, total vaccination everybody has to be vaccinated and uh, there is the hidden agenda or not so hidden anymore is a, a massive uh, population reduction this this is uh, maybe uh, a summary that uh, that i could put forth for this rockefeller report what would be best suited to to start with a total vaccination program other than a pandemic so pandemic has been has been declared uh, by WHO, co-opted WHO. We have to know also that WHO receives at least half of its budget from the pharmaceuticals and from Bill Gates, a big chunk from Bill Gates, from the pharmaceuticals and other big uh, industries like the telecom industry. Uh, so WHO, uh, some people ask, can it be trusted? No, it cannot be trusted. And this is maybe the organization, the one organization of the United Nations that has, uh, that actually is looked upon with a lot of respect by most of the people still today, because what they say is uh, like the Bible, uh, it, it has to be adhered to. Yet, uh, the, the current uh, director general has uh, a rather catastrophic record and has been put in uh, by pushing and shoving and corrupting uh, the system by Bill Gates, because he's a buddy of Bill Gates. Now, when the decision was taken to, uh, to declare this, uh, this uh, COVID-19 as a pandemic, that decision was taken probably the first one uh, when we had this event 201 on October 18 in New York City, which was co-sponsored by the World Economic Forum, Bill Gates uh, and his foundation, and the uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University, uh, the medical center of the Johns Hopkins University. And, and then already they run a scenario, uh, a computerized uh, simulation of a pandemic, which caused by computer about 65 million deaths and a disaster, a total disaster of the economy, a shutdown of the economy. I think more than 30% of the stock market was, uh, was wiped out. And lots of assets was uh, wiped out. Uh, catastrophic unemployment, uh, bankruptcies, and, and so on. So all of that was foreseen. So sort of the pandemic served to two things. First of all, shutting down the economy worldwide. Secondly, to then demand uh, a global vaccination program and electronic money, in other words, uh, digital money, so that the, the Every bank account can basically be controlled also through that system. And uh, the vaccination program can, of course, as we have uh, found out in the meantime already, the vaccination programs can be tainted, vac vaccines can be tainted with all sorts of, of uh, toxins that uh, do everything else but uh, uh, heal people or prevent diseases. Uh, but rather, for example, cases in, in Africa, in Kenya, uh, where uh, close to a million uh, women have been vaccinated and they're actually not been vaccinated, they've been sterilized by Bill Gates. 
and uh, in, in India and in uh, the Philippines, in uh, Afghanistan, and in many other countries, uh, pretty similar. So this is a scary, a very scary program. So that's, that's the agenda behind it. And uh, if the economy, of course, collapses, it will have uh, a lot of other elements which are not directly linked to money. Uh, money, of course, is very important in it. And so what Ellen is going to say uh, will have an enormous uh, impact. But more importantly, I think, or equally important, is the social aspect of it. I mean, there is already now, I'm, I'm right now, I'm living, I'm locked down in Peru. And I can see the city around me, 11 million people like Wuhan, but in totally different circumstances, about four or five million people of these, they live at the margin or below the margin. And, you know, uh, a lockdown or uh, uh, quarantine for these people to exist. They have to go out. Many of them have lost uh, their, their income because every everything shuts down. So they have to go out, they have to do some work, they have to somehow survive. Many of them have lost their homes because they can no longer pay rent. And so they're in the street. They cannot follow the curfew that exists officially here. Uh, and then uh, they, they, they are suffering from already uh, hunger is uh, rampant. Uh, and then they wanted to go home. They all come, or most of them come from the, the, the provincial areas. So they assembled in solidarity and wanted to go home to their provinces. The government interrupted them with police and with military and uh, stopped them with tear gas and, and, and with lots of uh, aggression so that eventually they couldn't leave. They said, you cannot leave. It's for security reasons. We will organize something. Eventually, they had to go back to their non-homes because they had none. So all of this is a big farce. You know, if five million people cannot be uh, under quarantine, so what does the quarantine do for the other five million people? It is just unbelievable. Ellen Brown, let's talk about the economic aspect of this a global shutdown. Um, what about the $2.2 trillion bailout of March 27th, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, known as the CARES Act? First of all, where is all of this money coming from, and to whom or to what is it going? In other words, was the system collapsing even before the economic lockdown? And what about the debt buildup? even before the coronavirus lockdown? Um, yes, we were definitely heading into debt deflation. I mean, if you looked at the stock market, you would think that everything was great. The stock market was going up, up, up. But in fact, we have two economies. We have the producer-consumer economy and the debt uh, volume there was huge. And so you had more and more defaults, like among student debts and car loan debts, et cetera, credit card debts, while the financial aid economy was doing fine because it was basically siphoning the money out of the producer-consumer economy. But as soon as this uh, crisis hit, the um, stock market crashed, I think, in, uh, I think it was in mid-March, and um, that was right after the World Health Organization, they didn't actually say it was a pandemic, but they said to expect a pandemic. And all of a sudden, their stock market crashed. 
And interestingly, BlackRock, which wound up uh, (laughs) the world's largest global asset manager, is now in charge of deciding who gets the bailout money from the feds. I can go into all that. But anyway, they are in a key position right now. BlackRock actually made, I saw that they made $68 million that very day, in one day, $68 million on Moderna stock. Moderna, it was the lead vaccine manufacturer, which was saying that they were they were ready to start trials on their, on their... Bill Gates company, we should say also. All right. And also interestingly, on December 31st, uh, BlackRock actually increased their their investment in Moderna by a third. Now, how did they know on December 31st? That was the first day we heard anything about, um, you know, a problem in Wuhan, so at least to heard it publicly. So, so it does seem highly conspiratorial. And then immediately we had this massive bailout or like within a few weeks after that, Congress, the entire Congress voted for this bailout, which was basically a six trillion bailout, most of which goes to big companies and um, big players in the stock market. And so there was like $454 billion that came from the uh, the Treasury's exchange stabilization fund. So it came from us, the taxpayers. In other words, not from the Federal Reserve. And this was to capitalize these special purpose vehicles, which then would lend or borrow um, 10 times that sum or could borrow up to 10 times that sum from the Federal Reserve. So it was a partnership between the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve, which was interesting in itself. If you go back to 2008, when we had that bailout, there was a $700 billion bailout by Congress, but they argued over it. You know, it was a big issue at the time. And people said, well, what about the Fed? Couldn't the Fed do it? And the Fed said, no, we, we, you know, we're not allowed to do that. And then two weeks later, the Fed said, well, OK, we can do it. And they came up with quantitative easing and wound up pumping $4 trillion into the economy that wasn't there before, buying up government debt and mortgage-backed securities. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown and economist and author Peter Koenig. Today's show, Global Economic Lockdown. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So now it took only a few days for Congress to, for all the Congress people to vote uh, unanimously for this bailout. And the Federal Reserve and the Treasury are now suddenly partnering, whereas before the Federal Reserve always said we're independent and we can't help out. <laughs> we can't help out Congress. It's not our mandate to do fiscal policy. It's just we just do monetary policy. But now, when the Federal Reserve needed the Treasury, then suddenly they're they're fine with partnering. The reason they need it is the Federal Reserve is only allowed to. Um, according to the rules in the Federal Reserve Act, they could only buy um, securities that were backed by the federal government. So that would be federal debt or mortgage-backed securities that um, came from Fannie and Freddie, which are government-backed agencies. So now what they've agreed to buy with all these special purpose vehicles is every form of dodgy asset out there going all the way down to BBB minus, like the lowest grade of investment grade security. So 
so now these special purpose vehicles can buy those dodgy assets and borrow the funds from the Federal Reserve. And then there were other facilities that were set up as well. And they they gave remarkable benefits to the banks. They um, cut interest rate to close to zero on the um, on the Fed's discount window. It used to be that banks wouldn't go to the discount window because it was only where you went if nobody else would lend to you, if you couldn't go in the Fed funds market. But now the Federal Reserve is encouraging the banks to come and please come and borrow at our discount window for 0% interest, 0 to 0.25%. So it's like nothing. Um, And they said you can borrow up to three months and you can renew those loans, you know, daily. In other words, they can borrow for free over and over and over and just keep that up. Um, and they said you don't have to worry about capital requirements, that you should um, actually lend your capital if you need it. And they eliminated the reserve requirement. So there's absolutely no limits on the banks to just pump money out there as they will, basically for free. And they're backstopped by the Federal Reserve. Now, personally, I'm not opposed to that. I think that's a great idea, except that the banks should not be private. So that's what I always write about is that we could take advantage of that. Obviously, it wasn't intended for us, <laughs> but I always think of the movie um, The Hunger Games, where where it was all the technology and the TVs and stuff that had trapped the people, but the patriots won by taking over the media and using it to their own advantage. So these these things that have changed are good in a way. The system is changing and it is our opportunity to jump in and use those facilities for our own benefits. So we could use that um, bottomless tap or bottomless well of liquidity at the Fed in the public interest if we set up some public banks. And ideally, I mean, I think the whole banking system should be public. It should be a public utility and the Federal Reserve itself should have a mandate to serve the public and not just to serve the banks. In your article, was the Fed just nationalized? What will individuals, families, communities, and local governments be getting out of this massive bailout? How do you answer that? Yeah, very little. Well, we got one $1,200 payment. I haven't seen mine yet. I don't know. People that are desperate for this money could be out in the streets before they actually get it. If you don't have a bank account and you didn't pay your taxes last year, I guess it could take up to four months to come. And then they gave some um, some unemployment relief, like four, four months unemployment benefits. But still, it's very little and very spotty. You know, there are many sectors that are left out. So businesses, local businesses, that close their doors, many of them are just not going to have the money to reopen because there's no relief. Like there was a moratorium on um, paying your mortgage or you're paying your rent, but in three months, you're just going to have three months worth of rent to pay and you're not going to have any customers or you're not going to have that three months worth of income. And so those businesses will, will probably just close their doors, which it looks like that, I mean, who will benefit from this? Obviously the big, big corporations, just like after 2008, the big corporations took over, took over the small local banks that our local banks just disappeared because they were gobbled up by the big banks because they couldn't afford to survive in that environment. 
And now the small businesses or their share of the market is going to be gobbled up by the big businesses. And soon we will have a giant corporatocracy where they're only big businesses. And even though they purport to be like five independent businesses, we know they're all oligarchs that coordinate with a wink and a nod, you know, like the like the big companies that own our communications right now. So we're heading more and more toward what used to be called fascism, which means the corporations own the government, essentially. In fact, I think we have a worse situation than in, than in um, Germany because the corporations really do run the government now, whereas I think in Germany it was at least a partnership between them. Well, I understand that the stimulus disappeared in less than a week. In in other words, it was all spent. What about uh, supply chain disruptions and, and food shortages? Will supply dry up due to lack of production? Uh, it will, and it already has. For example, I saw that they were dumping uh, millions of eggs because they didn't have the cartons to put the eggs in to ship them to market. Well, they got the cartons from China, and apparently we don't, we didn't have the ability to substitute for those cartons. So anyway, you've got all the, that type of disruption, and the message, assuming we work through all this, the message is that we've got to become more self-sufficient in our local communities, use your, your local uh, farmer's market and that sort of thing, you know, go more local. But yeah, it's going to definitely be a problem. There'll definitely be shortages. There'll definitely be people desperate for jobs or desperate for welfare. And then, you know, there's that whole theory about now people will be dependent on the government. I wrote an article on universal basic income and why we need it and why it won't be inflationary. Um, and then, of course, I got lots of emails saying, no, it's they, they want that because it, it's part of the New World Order agenda that we, we'll all be dependent on the state and then uh, they'll be able to turn off our money through the chips in our hands, uh, which that might be the agenda. But the fact that everybody gets a universal basic income, in other words, a dividend every month does not make you dependent on the government. What makes you dependent on the government is if they've cut off the jobs, if you cannot go out and work. And that's the situation we have right now. We cannot go out and work. And what makes you dependent on a digital currency is not that you're getting paid your universal basic income through a digital currency. It's that they've cut out cash. They've forbid the use of cash and they could do that anytime we've already got 95 percent of our money supply is already digital so you know they could easily just say all right we're banning cash like they did in india where they cut out certain bills and that would be the end of cash and then we would be forced to rely on our digital currency but the fact that you have a universal basic income does not mandate any of those results. It's another sort of Hunger Games thing where we can turn that around to our advantage. Now that they're talking about a universal basic income, the only real downside is that people think that would be inflationary if the if the government just keeps pumping money out there month after month, but it won't because of this whole debt deflation situation. People think of money as like a bucket of water, and if you keep putting more, more water in, of course, it's going to overflow. But for one thing, our bucket has big holes in it the water is leaking out into the financialized economy so we need to keep putting more money in it i mean ideally you'd plug the hole but 
in the meantime, you need to keep putting more money in it. And the other problem is that our money isn't like fixed things like coins. It's debits and credits. All of our money is, or 95% of our money is created by banks when they make loans. And when the loans are paid off, the, the money disappears. But they create the principal and they don't create the interest. So you always are sucking more money out of the system than you're putting into it. And that's that's why debt always grows faster than the money supply. And eventually you wind up with um, with a collapse. So you have booms and busts and it's called the business cycle. But the reason we have a business cycle is because of the nature of how money comes into existence. And you could fix that either with a debt jubilee, which is what Michael Hudson recommends. And of course, it's a great idea if you could pull it off. But the problem is most of our debt is private, privately held and you can't tell these bankers to just walk away from their loans because first of all they'll go bankrupt themselves and second of all that's not that's not their business plan their business plan is to make profits and so so the other alternative is to keep putting more money into the bucket which is then leaking out into the financialized economy uh, Peter Karnig in your article coronavirus the aftermath a coming mega depression, you write that mergers of gigantic proportions may take place. It may be the last shift of capital from the bottom to the top in our era of civilization as we know it. Could you describe what you think the world will look like after this massive shift of capital to the top? Um, yes, I mean this is a this is a very good question, which probably nobody really can uh, can answer at this point. We are only at the beginning, but uh, what I also uh, said, I think, in the same article, and what I believe is that uh, we have already today, uh, just recently, I've heard, uh, uh, I think, the Fed uh, declaring that there are more than twenty six uh, million people in the U.S. claiming unemployment. And this figure is going up and up and up. And the projections are that within the next quarter, we will reach only in the US and probably the figures in Europe are either worse or, or, or very similar, uh, between 32 and 40% unemployment of the workforce, which is enormous. And of course, this goes along with, uh, with the collapse of the economy, with bankruptcies uh, spinning out of control totally, we, we don't even know that yet, how many of them uh, have already happened, these, uh, these bankruptcies, and uh, how they will impact. Uh, I mean, there's going to be a domino effect on more unemployment. And so, so eventually, all of this will be somehow bought up, or some of it. I think many, maybe up to now, it's estimated in Europe as well as in the US, probably at least 30 to 50% of the medium and smaller enterprises that have collapsed or will collapse will never come back. So where do they go? Well, they will be bought up by bigger companies and the bigger companies by the corporate uh, world. So we are really, as Ellen said, we are going to have a, a corporate capacity uh, that is uh, going to command uh, what the governments are going to do. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown and economist and author Peter Koenig. Today's show, Global Economic Lockdown. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
and 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 so we could i could imagine a future world if we do not interfere i really would not like to imagine that but i think we we have now the opportunity to take a hold on this on, on this global shift but if we don't like i could see a, a world where really the the corporations they are dominating everything they are dictating you what you have to buy how you have to dress what you have to eat and uh, what your social life is 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 going to be so on when basically and when you have to die because after a certain age you don't contribute anymore to society so you're worthless to society and eventually uh, you know you you will have to go uh, this this is the, the, the really the horror the scenario that 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 could happen if if we do not interfere, because this is basically what this uh, 2010 Rockefeller report uh, isn't if it isn't always explicit about it, but it's between the lines very clearly uh, to be to be read. So this is this is a world which uh, which which is horrifying. And I, I had just in front of me the, the headlines of the New York Times, one of the headlines of the New York Times of uh, the 22nd of April, which says, instead of coronavirus, the hunger will kill us. And, uh, and this is, this is uh, what is really already happening. I've tried to just explain a little bit the scenario of one big city in Latin America, which is Lima, uh, where hunger is already rampant, except nobody talks about it, and it's representative. Now, uh, let's go to the to, to larger figures. There's just the uh, uh, the World Food Program has issued a report uh, which says that uh, if if we, I mean, there are other elements, uh, not only the coronavirus, which uh, which will bring about this particularly uh, tough situation for people in poor countries which which may increase the the people who are under uh, threat of hunger from about 130 million people today to 265 million by the end of this year and this is only an estimate taken at the end of april and we don't know how as i said at the beginning it's very difficult to predict something it may get much much worse Plus, there will be droughts, there will be floods, and all of that can already today be influenced by man. And, and therefore, already today, according to the World Food Program, already today, almost a billion people are under a food insecurity. In other words, they could fall into, into a famine situation basically from one day to another. And if there is no rescue to these people, uh, they may die. You know, they may die miserable deaths. And, uh, and I don't think that the people behind the system, behind what is going on, uh, have any plans to, to rescue them to, to the country. I mean, this is, this is part of their population reduction game. I'm, I'm, I'm very blunt, I must say, but uh, this, is, this is what I have been uh, hearing uh, Kissinger saying since the 1970s, who controls food controls the population. Uh, among other things, and uh, and Bill Gates boasting about it in in a 2010 uh, uh, TED talk in in Southern California, where he says if we are doing a really good job with vaccinating people, we can reduce world population by 10 to 15 percent. The, the quote is actually from his own uh, video 
which is uh, which is in my articles, uh, which anybody can can see and go back to. So, on those circumstances, you know, there is there is a really really very tough agenda, which I call the social part of it. Yes, we could do a lot uh, with with money, but when we are talking about Federal Reserve and the quantitative easing, even if you release uh, uh, four to five trillion dollars for uh, public banking, and I totally are in, I'm in line with with Ellen on public banking. Every bank should be public, and then we actually we we could actually follow uh, the, the the Chinese system. They have about four thousand public banks or public institutions which lend money to the sectors that are absolutely necessary and that's how china has grown out of their misery or at least partly grown out of their misery so far and and we could we could do the same thing except that's not part of our neoliberal system but we're talking now only about the the, the global north and if you look at the global south all of that doesn't exist you know there's no structure in in, in uh, in financial or, or monetary uh, policies. This doesn't basically exist. The structure is being imposed by the West, by the North, basically, by these institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. I've uh, recently read that some members of the board, and it was not specified who, but some members of the IMF board have proposed uh, a COVID-19 special rescue fund of uh, 4 trillion SDR, special drawing rights, of to set up special drawing rights in the IMF. That would mean that countries could actually apply for these uh, special drawing rights in, in terms of loans and, uh, and of course would be further indebted to the north uh, where we have already today a flow of capital which is much, much larger from the south to the north than the flow of investments and donations and, and uh, development assistance that goes from the north to the south. Uh, so these structures that we have in the north do not exist. What, what exists basically is still the north dictating to the south and makes them dependent. And that's why the hunger or this actually, which for me, the famine is the ultimate control of the people because either you eat or you die and and this is exactly what the what the system is all about to have total control and if, unless we bring about into these countries which we call developing countries the third world uh, the, the global south unless we bring them into a system which they create on their own uh, autosufficiency uh, they regain national sovereignty about their economy, about the monetary system. They will continue to depend on us. I've read recently, not too long ago, uh, actually just about the time when, when some members of the board of the IMF suggested the 4 trillion SDR uh, rescue fund, they had already 60 countries applying. Uh, for money from the SDR, from the IMF. 60 countries, that's about a third of the countries registered within the United Nations. And probably by now there are even more. So the four trillion would be peanuts to, to rescue them. And the rescue is actually, you know, that's an enslavement by debt of these countries. 
and 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 so they will never get independent unless we can get to them we can get the message to them close down the globalization close down what china has done when they grew out of the ashes actually in 1948 until about mid 80s before they opened the borders for investments and for international trade they had basically closed the borders to become auto self sufficient in food in uh, health and, and and in education. Food, they haven't reached totally yet, but they are about to. And that's when they open up. And I think this this little formula, which, uh, which I always talk about, is uh, local production for local consumption with local money through local public banks and the local central bank uh, that works actually for the local economy. And the trade, the external trade, that comes as a second priority, and that would be with with the countries that share the same uh, same ideology, that are friendly countries, that are maybe neighboring countries. And I always look at uh, Alba, you know, this uh, South American uh, system of of, of exchange uh, that has been created by Chavez and uh, Castro uh, about maybe 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. So similar systems could exist within within the global south so that they become totally self-sufficient and not dependent anymore on, on the north. Because with their dependence, who eats will survive and who doesn't eat will not will not live is, is going to continue. And this is, uh, this is worse than the Hunger Games that we have seen in the movies. Absolutely. So this is this is what I see coming uh, out of this. If if there is no interference, if there is no consciousness, there's no public consciousness. And I think this consciousness has no borders. You know, it, it, it has to start with with maybe with us, but it also has to start with with those people in the South who are really exposed and who are being uh, enslaved with that continuously and the plans are already now there. I mean, we, they, I just mentioned that the World Bank and the IMF, they are ready to, to indebt them further to make them dependent under the pretext of, of, of rescuing them. And unless they wake up and say, no, stop, uh, they will continue, this, this trend will continue. And I have a number of other examples, for example, Argentina. In, in 2001, I believe it was when Argentina decided uh, they wanted to get out of the uh, of the fangs of the IMF and the World Bank. In order to do so, you have to pay off the debt, and they did pay off the debt. They got the money as a loan, as a low cost loan from indirectly from uh, from the Chavez government from from Venezuela via the Andean Development Bank, and uh, and that allowed them actually to start growing again and that there's no country in recent history that has recovered so quickly under the under the Kirchner governments within the, the first eight or ten years. Of course they were below zero, so growing is, is not that complicated. But they have wiped out about two thirds of, of the poverty within within a dozen of years. Which is which is almost unbelievable. You know, they they had a, they had a poverty rate at that time in 2001, 2002. I worked in Argentina uh, at that time for the World Bank, uh, but uh, but not with structural adjustment, but, with, but in the in the water and the environment sector. But uh, still, you know, I had a total overview 
of, of what was going on. And uh, what, what they have actually managed to do is just unbelievable, just because they got out of the fangs of these international organizations. Now, of course, coming Macri in 2015, he has uh, uh, put uh, within a few months uh, poverty back into Argentina, and now they're fighting again to get to get out of it. And they probably may, they probably will manage because they have an example from from the, the, the past uh, 20 years and how to do it. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown and economist and author Peter Koenig. Today's show, Global Economic Lockdown. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But, but this is a good example of how, for example, another case is, is Greece. Uh, Greece could have uh, done the same thing. Greece could have said, okay, let's uh, let's stop this dependence on the euro. Uh, we are an autonomous country and there's nothing in the world, there's not even Maastricht that prohibits a country to exit the, the eurozone. They can. In fact, there are nine countries of the, of the European Union which are not part of the eurozone. Uh, so they could have at any time said, okay, if you let us, we will stay in the in, in the European Union, but we will take the monetary policy and our e economic uh, sovereignty back into our hands and exit it. And then they could have started negotiating, as did Argentina, with the rest of the world to to uh, to repay or get their debt forgiven. You know, a debt jubilee could have been negotiated in that case because it would have been an independent sovereign country that is being strangled and is continue to be strangled and will continue to be strangled unless somebody comes up with the idea and, and gives them what Michael Hutchins says that that should be for, for, for Greece. So with these examples and, and there are others, you know, of countries that have been taking over their own economy again. Uh, they have stepped out, for example, from the World Trade Organization, which is an organization set up again by the elite, by the by the global north, in order to be able to to uh, uh, exploit better uh, developing countries. So, getting out of these systems is is number one priority, and becoming their own self again. Uh, this is probably what uh, Mexico is trying to do right now. It's not easy. It's not easy being uh, the neighbor of the United States and having uh, a huge, a huge uh, debt still from the International Monetary Fund. To get out of it is, is, is not easy, but they are working on it. And I think they may succeed. So if other countries would follow that, that road and, and just shut off and become their own self again, uh, to become autosufficient, get rid of uh, globalization. Globalization is death of the world economy, has been the death of the world economy, and, uh, and not only by death, but also by, by sheer submission and eventually hunger. This is, this is uh, what, what will decide who, who will live and who will die. Ellen Brown, will this planned economic collapse lead to the bankruptcy and privatization of state governments and municipalities by big money? And if so, how does this privatization mechanism work? 
Well, that's another thing where it looks like the intent is to drive the states into bankruptcy. Uh, just last week, Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate Majority Leader, said that um, he was opposed to giving more money to the states. The money that they gave was $150 billion to the states. So if you divide that out, that's like $3 billion on average for each state. And their costs are already much more than that. But the um, the limitations they put on this money was that it couldn't be used for anything that was in the past budget, like that was already in the budget up to March something of uh, this year. Well, they put everything in the budget. That's how they fund everything is they budget for it and then they plan on the taxes to pay for it. So, and they're not going to get their taxes. They're not going to have as much coming in and they're going to have more going out because of this crisis, but they can't cover those costs. They can only use it for things like hospitals and things that are directly related to the to the shutdown and I saw New Jersey's governor um, Phil Murphy said you know that this was this was going to bankrupt them that uh, that they were going to have to give half the money back because they they weren't able to use it for what they really needed it for and uh, Mitch McConnell said he preferred to see that that's what he really wanted to see was that we would allow states to go bankrupt that he would rather have that then have the federal government give states money with the free reign to do with what they would because what they will use it for is to pay their pensions, you know, and that they're over their heads in the, their pensions, et cetera. So that's really what the goal was here was to get out of those pension contracts. Of course, conservatives have always been opposed to, they always want to downsize government and get rid of those pensions and the unions that negotiate them. So it looks like it's all about privatizing everything. There's this push to privatize the post office, which is really struggling right now. And they were already struggling because of this insane uh, requirement that they save up enough for the um, the medical costs or medical and retirement, I've forgotten, for 75 years into the future of their employees. So, so these are people that aren't even born yet. If you figure like 25-year-olds start their jobs out at, at the post office. But they did that, obviously, and I think it was in 2005. They did it, obviously, to bankrupt the post office. It's a burden that's not put on any other entity, and they want to bankrupt it because they want to privatize it. So the goal is to have everything privately owned by a handful of big big companies and they're driving the states into that as well. The states have always had an issue with the federal government. You know, it's always been states' rights for the feds and there are a lot of lawsuits about it. Uh, but it looks like right now that the federal government is just taking over and, and that states don't have much say in it. They can protest, but nobody seems to be listening. Well, Ellen, uh, with regard to the post office, I remember many years ago, Michael Hudson said on my show, the post office is not supposed to make money. It's a public service. Right. And they, and they aren't supported by the taxpayers. They, they've been self-sufficient for 200 years, and they're in the Constitution. It's the only business that's in the Constitution. I think that's another thing that annoys conservatives is they don't want government to run any business and they definitely don't want any examples of government running a business successfully. So the only thing the government gets to do are those things that are money losers. Anything that makes money gets privatized, 
like we get to do all the studies and for example for drugs and then we hand the research over to private companies to develop them and they make all the profits of it well now how does the privatization scheme how does that mechanism work what's what's going to uh trigger say the privatization of let's say the state of california the government and also uh, along with that with this collapse in the stock market that's already affected pensions hasn't it yes for sure Pension money is managed by BlackRock, a lot of it. You know, they have asset managers, so their money's in the stock market. And I know after the 2008 crisis, I don't remember the exact number, but I'm thinking that California had $500 billion in its two big pension funds, and they went down by a third, I think, in the stock market crisis. So it looks like in the good times, you say, well, we've got to be invested in the stock market because we can make 10% there or whatever, you know, 8%, 7%, whatever their goal is. Uh, but if you project it out over 50 years instead of 10 years, then uh, the stock market periodically is a really bad investment. Um, but I think what they would do to bankrupt the states is they're forcing them to sell off their assets in order to meet their budget because they're not going to get money from anywhere else. And they have to balance their budget. The federal government can just keep going further and further and further into debt. Theoretically, we have a debt ceiling, but we keep raising it. But I, again, I think that's actually good. The problem with the debt is not the debt itself, which can just be rolled over and over. What it really does is just put new money in the economy. But the problem is the interest. And we last year, I think we paid $565 billion just on interest on the federal debt. So actually, I think it should all be bought by the Federal Reserve, interest-free, and then the Fed returns the interest to the Treasury, which it does already after deducting their costs. But what the states will have to do, because they're required to balance their budget, and they won't have any other source of money, is to sell off their assets. So we've already seen that quite a bit with these alleged public-private partnerships. But what that means is, is the public bears the costs and the private investors get all the profits. So you have like privatized roads, pri well, just privatized everything. I mean, I, I think everybody knows these examples of the parking meters, for example, that are a dollar for 15 minutes. <laughs> all that money's going to private businesses. Uh, may, may I say something uh, to that, uh, Bonnie? Yes, please chime in, Peter. Okay, thank you very much. Now, I, I, uh, I agree what uh, uh, Ellen says. You know, the debt just keeps increasing and increasing and increasing and being rolled over. And uh, as long as this is a local debt, it doesn't really matter. But with the United States dollar, which still serves largely as the as the international currency of reference, it's dropping its importance in the world reserve currency. But it's still the key world reserve currency. And if you look at the debt from outside, and yes, you have the debt which is which is constantly reported and which is probably about 110 percent right now of GDP. But then you have what the, the General Accounting Office says, unmet obligations. And unmet obligations are these accumulative debts with interests never paid, which today, and they, they increase every year, today they amount to about seven or eight times GDP. 
Can you imagine? I mean, there's no country in the world that could allow itself to be indebted to that extent of uh, seven or eight times the debt. That's basically what it is, unmet obligations of uh, seven to eight times uh, the value of GDP. However, uh, this is this is seen around the world more and more. And so countries, uh, they start uh, losing trust in the dollar. The dollar is based on nothing, absolutely nothing. As Ellen said earlier, you know, it's made by banks on the, the mouse click. Somebody asks for a loan and uh, and you create create new money. So. So this is how this is how it's made, and more and more of the world governments see that, and they compare it with with others. They compare it, for example, with the Chinese yuan, which is based on its own economy, uh, and 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 it's also backed by gold. So there you have a solid currency, which is already part of the five currency uh, special drawing rights basket of of the of the IMF. Therefore, it has been admitted as an official reserve currency. And this official reserve currency is very, very rapidly taking over uh, from from the dollar. And the the official figures are are not really known yet. But I could imagine for one one thing is for for sure that about 20 years ago, more than 90 percent of all the of of all the world reserves were denominated in, in U.S. dollars. Uh, today it's less than 60%, and if this figure keeps dropping and dropping, eventually that will that will bring another change, another paradigm change, uh, which will bring about uh, the, the the loss of the world monetary hegemony by by the United States, and and having having uh, and and seeing this from from the rest of the world looking at it from the international point of view, from an international angle. So the United States has everything to lose by continuing with, with this with this debt trap inside and outside the country, because eventually uh, it, it will backfire on them. And maybe, may, maybe hopefully so, because unless we are entering into an era of a new monetary system, of a new uh, international exchange system, which is not totally controlled by Western banks or by US banks, uh, the, the rest of the world will constantly be uh, vulnerable to, to sanctions, to international sanctions left and right and left and right. And countries are getting sick and tired of it. And many do not dare uh, stepping out, but more and more come forward and eventually will step out of this and will join maybe the East. Well, thank you, Peter. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm very happy to know you now and uh, we, we, we are in touch. And Ellen Brown, thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Bonnie. It was great talking to you and great talking to you, Peter. Thank you. Very good talking to you, Ellen. I've been speaking with Ellen Brown and Peter Koenig. Today's show has been Global Economic Lockdown. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, author, and the founder of the Public Banking Institute. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free, and From Austerity to Prosperity, The Public Bank Solution. She is the author of many books on natural healing, as well as numerous articles on the financial system. 
Visit Ellen Brown's website at ellenbrown.com. That's ellenbrown.com. Visit the Public Banking Institute's website at publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. Peter Koenig is an economist and geopolitical analyst. He is a water resources and environmental specialist. He worked for over 30 years with the World Bank and the World Health Organization around the world in the fields of environment and water. He lectures at universities in the U.S., Europe, and South America. He is the author of Implosion, an economic thriller about war, environmental destruction, and corporate greed. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Release. You dig me? You got me?